welcome to Inside the Writer's Cafe, brought to you on webtalkradio.net. I'm Cheryl Mason. This is a show about books and the fascinating people who write them. Each week, we feature conversations with top authors of fiction and nonfiction about their latest work. From the Civil War to a very civilized Boston is where we go on today's show. We look at the changing roles of physicians throughout history. My Name is Mary Sutter by Robin Oliveira is our first book published by Viking. And we take the reader into the world of the Civil War, where a midwife and two surgeons face the realities of the casualties caused by war. The Doctor and the Diva by Adrian McDowell, published by Pamela Dorman Books, is set in Boston in 1903, where an aspiring opera singer her husband, and a Harvard-educated obstetrician form a triangle that changes all of their lives. Robin Oliveira holds a B.A. in Russian, and she studied at the Pushkin Language Institute in Moscow, Russia. She's also a registered nurse specializing in critical care and bone marrow transplant. She received a master's in fine arts and writing from Vermont College of Fi- from the Vermont College of Fine Arts. She's the fiction editor for the literary magazine Upstreet and a former assistant editor at Narrative Magazine. She was awarded the James Jones First Novel Fellowship in 2007. Robin joins us today to talk about her powerful Civil War novel, My Name is Mary Sutter. Robin, welcome. Oh, thank you so much for having me. It's delightful to be here. Oh, and your book. Wow. I mean, powerful Civil War novel does not even begin to describe this. Let's give our listeners a brief description, because this is historical, but you also have fabulous characters. So let's give them a little description of what the book is about, and then let's talk about some specifics. Well, the book is uh, the book is many things. I, I like a big fat book with lots of subplots and characters and multiple themes and storylines. And uh, this book is about um, the beginning of modern medicine in America, the beginning of modern nursing, about the the medical and political apocalypse that was the Civil War. But it's also a family saga, and it's also a love story. And in fact, it's it's many love stories. It, and you're right. I love it that you said you like a big fat book with lots of characters and lots of subplots because that's what this is. And it, on so many levels, it is so, I keep using the word powerful, but it is. Let's talk about Mary Sutter. Who is Mary Sutter? Mary Sutter is a young, she's 20 years old. She is a preternaturally gifted midwife who comes from a long line of midwives that stretch back to uh, France. She is the fraternal twin sister of Jenny, uh, the brother, uh, or the sister of her younger brother, um, Thomas. She is a very smart, very bright, very curious young woman who who wants to be a physician after watching her father suffer uh, a terrible death from which no physicians could uh, save him. She is she doesn't suffer fools gladly either and she says exactly what she's thinking which which gives her a lot of trouble in her very sort of upper crust Albany New York life. 
I thought it was very interesting that you set the family as an upper middle class or actually upper class in this particular era and time. It seems like I, w- I didn't think about that until I began to read it. And she encounters one of the physicians, and she goes to his house, and she wants to study medicine, and she's been turned away, turned away, turned away, turned away. And so she goes to the house of Blevins, and she winds up being there at a critical moment for the physician because he has a young woman who's in labor. And Mary is extraordinarily skilled. I mean, she's just above and beyond what you would expect any midwife to be. And so Blevins is fascinated by her, at the same time almost repelled by her want and insistence upon knowledge because she approaches him about studying underneath him. And this is the very beginning of the Civil War. And they all think that they're going to run off and be gone for a few months and come right back. And so Blevins looks at her and says, no, 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 I can't I can't do that. And you're a woman besides. I thought that the theme of Mary trying to push her way in at this point in history was very, very powerful because she won't take no for an answer. She just keeps pushing. She does. And the interesting thing is that she she does push very hard for what she wants, which um, is un, was unusual at the time. Most women didn't do that. But the other thing that's interesting about this is that the Civil War particularly, just much like World War II, uh, tended to liberate women in the United States. Um, the men were busy off running, doing other things, and women were allowed a few more liberties than they would have had otherwise. Now, around the you know around the world, war is generally a disaster for women. Uh, it ruined you know people starve and and women did starve down south especially. But in this particular case, Mary's determination meets an opportune moment for her. And Blevins. When he goes to her home, his expectation is very different from the reality. He does not expect her to come from money. And when he walks into her home and they have a a birthing room upstairs where they they keep mothers who are having problems with birthing, I mean, it's it's a beautiful home. That, That was a surprise. It was a surprise for the reader, me, and a surprise for Blevins as well because I think he thought, that Mary was just going to be, I mean, from some other class. He just did not expect what he found. And I thought that was a surprising place to have her from. But at the same time, when you think about her and think about her intelligence, it falls right into place and you think, oh, of course. Yeah, he he didn't expect wealth. And that's particularly because most midwives did not come from the upper classes. You know, they would be women who um, generally had already had their children and who could spend long periods of time away from home um, in another woman's house while she uh, labored and delivered and recovered afterwards. And so his expectation uh, was turned on its head. Um, And I did like the fact that she unseated him pretty quickly after he was not so, shall we say, welcoming. Yes, exactly. He was uh, he was very high and mighty until all of a sudden he got into her home and he winds up at their dinner table where he did not want to be. 
He really didn't want to be there. He really didn't with her mother and her twin sister and her twin sister's husband-to-be. And here's Blevins in the middle of all this and the brother and all of this conversation is flowing around her. And I loved it that you explored the role of the twin. Mary is the very adventure-seeking twin. She's the stronger-edged person. She's the one that becomes the midwife. And Jenny is almost Mary's antithesis. And, you know, that's what they say about twins. And I, I really liked the way you explored that role. Well, that you know, it was almost hard for me to to put that down, to have them be such opposites. I wondered how... I wondered how typical that would be because I actually haven't known that many twins. But because they're fraternal and not identical, um, I thought it it might be completely possible, just as, you know, a woman could have two children who are completely opposite, (laughs) that you could have two twins who are completely opposite. And it explored, in essence, it allowed me to explore the full spectrum of womanhood in the mid-19th century. You also, I mean, the history in the novel... This is so well-researched. We see Lincoln, and we see asides with Lincoln. We we see John Hay and Lincoln having conversations. We see Lincoln meeting with the generals, and we see the, the, the war unfold and what a toll it took on all of these people who were in charge of this horrible war that became... So, I mean, it was just such carnage and so much life was lost. And the role of disease and the role of amputation, and you explore that as well. And that is so powerful. How long did it take you to get the historical research correct, Robin? Well, you know, it was a very, it was a long process. It was, when I first started writing the book, I knew very little about the Civil War. And that then drove me into reading some good histories of the war. Um, But for the medical portion, I ended up in Washington, D.C. at the archives, National Archives, looking at all the primary documents that came out of the Civil War hospitals. And it was from looking at that primary stuff, the diaries that the nurses kept, the ledgers that they tried to use to sort of impose some order on things, you know, the little sort of loose notes and receipts that, that the hospitals had for paying the Eggman and the lists of nurses who, who from around the, the hospitals who came in to help after the battles, the lists of, you know, beds and empty beds and who they could dismiss and who they couldn't dismiss when the city was overwhelmed. It was those particular items that gave me sort of the strong basis for the medical history of the war that underlies the novel. And from then I was able to go to look at, in 1887 or 89, the government public printing office uh, published all the case studies from the Civil War medicine. Right about a year into it, the doctors realized that their training was not sufficient for the injuries they were seeing. And so they began to write to one another to try to figure out how to treat the disease and the and the problems they were seeing. And they they began what is probably the most comprehensive research project ever done in medicine. And it was that original documentation also that allowed me to um, understand how 
unprepared they were for what happened. At the same time, I was able to read Lincoln's original work and and understand that everybody, from the politicians to the physicians, were trying to get a handle on this huge conflagration that had erupted. And it was it was that kind of a thing that that drove me as I wrote. Um, understanding, sort of putting myself in their place and thinking, oh my gosh, how could you possibly cope with the new and difficult circumstances that were thrust in their way? And oh my gosh, they're just regular people. Yes. I mean, that's one of the things that I really like. We have this triangle with the two surgeons, Stiff and Blevins, and they're both drawn to Mary. They they both have very strong feelings for her. They both really fall in love with her, and that's part of the story. And we watch Mary go through her first amputation, and she is so strong. And at the same time, I mean, she's I, I can't imagine what these women and men must have gone through to have to cut someone's leg off and have to try to read the book while you're trying to figure out how to do this because you've never done it before. It's not ever been something that's been part of your medical training. Yeah, it was, the, you know, germ theory hadn't been um, hadn't been developed yet and nobody really understood infection. And in fact, those injuries that were, that took place during the Civil War were a result of the development of the mini ball, which shattered bones in a way that no musket ball ever had before. So on top of the fact that uh, amputations were rarely done because uh, after surgeries, almost everybody always died, so they, they always did it as a last resort. Nobody had ever seen the complicated shattered bones before. And so France was way ahead of us in terms of surgery, and uh, they used a French text at the beginning of the war. And I could envision the fact that if you hadn't done it before, you would definitely need somebody standing beside you reading <laughs> reading in the instructions line by line to tell you how to do the difficult surgery. I can see that as well. And the, 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 oh, the dirt. And, and when you read about all of the, I mean, I know the germ theory had not come into being yet, but you read about what they did, and it just sounds so horrible that people would die because they had diarrhea and they didn't know how to stop it. And it, that's just a part of the book that gives it such a smack of reality. But the persons, the the characters, and the interplay between the love stories, because there are several love stories that evolve through the book, and the idea even of giving birth, we watch that and we watch some of the complications. Today I think we take so much of this for granted because it's just the way things are. This holds up a mirror to a whole beginning of the way things were then and we turn that mirror and see the way things they the, the way things are now and we see really how far we've come. This is just captivating and sometimes it's difficult to read because it you really hit the nail on the proverbial head, Robin. Well, you know, I'm a nurse, right? And so, uh, it's, I, and Mary is thinking in clinical terms, just as I think in clinical terms. And, um, part, part of, um, 
part of imbuing Mary with some of the emotions as she is clinical about what she's doing was also remembering what it was like as a, a nursing student or a new nurse in intensive care to go into a room and know that the very sick person lying in the bed, their their well-being depended on how well I was able to think and how well I was able to perform in the eight hours that they were in my care. And so I, I was thinking about that as I as I wrote some of those uh, some of those scenes that are very clinical. And I, you know, people sometimes ask me, is it um, you know, you can tell some people are squeamish, but I, I, I tried very hard not to sensationalize those moments, but simply to give you the medical blow by blow. That's how I felt about it. I, I, be, I would become uncomfortable because I would feel so sorry. Or the book is emotional. I mean, it triggers because you begin to think about these people, and because the characters are so well written, they begin to be alive for us, and so. The poignancy that you have put forward in the book, I think, is very, very strong. And there were times that I just, I would have to kind of stop and think, oh, oh, this is just so terrible. And I had to think, oh, Cheryl, this is a book. Relax. (laughs) (laughs) But I began to think because you painted such a realistic feeling of that period in time, those characters really had breath sounds and heartbeats. So, bravo! You did a beautiful job with this, Robin. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate it. I, I really hoped all all I really hoped for when I was writing the book was that somebody else might love the characters as much as I loved them. And I'm pleased to hear you you fell in love with them. Success, success. <laughs> and I think anyone that picks up a copy of My Name is Mary Sutter will feel exactly that way because how can you not? They're such wonderful characters. If our listeners want to know more about you, want to know more about My Name is Mary Sutter, do you have a website that they can go to? I do, and it's uh, com. We might have to spell Olivera for them, but it's Robin with an I. And then uh, you spell olive, O-L-I-V-E, and then you add I-R-A, and that's Olivera. And I also, I'm on um, the Facebook page with My Name is Mary Sutter, and I'm also starting an author Facebook page under Robin Olivera. So there are several ways you can find me. Excellent. Thank you so much for taking time to talk with us and be our guest today on Inside the Writer's Cafe. It's been an absolute pleasure. Well, thank you for all your lovely questions. I really appreciate it. You're listening to Inside the Writer's Cafe, brought to you on webtalkradio.net. Adrienne McDonald is the author who's with us today, and she was once a children's librarian at the Boston Public Library. She's taught literature and fiction writing at the University of California at Berkeley, and she's led workshops for adults through UC Berkeley Extension and the Cambridge Center for Adult Education in Cambridge, Massachusetts. And she's joining us today to talk about this incredibly interesting historical novel that she's written called The Doctor and the Diva. Adrian, welcome. Thank you. I'm happy to be here, Cheryl. Oh, well, I'm so pleased. This novel, I mean, I try not to rave. I guess if the people listen to our show, they figured out by now that I do books that I like, and I like your book very, very much. It's beautifully written and it it holds this mirror to society in 1903 and I'm always 
fascinated a little bit by the where we came from and where we are today. And you and I have been talking almost 20 minutes before we started doing the interview, so I have to be careful and not exclude our listeners. Let's let them in on what the book is about, and then let's talk about some specifics, because this is just fascinating. Okay. Well, um, The Doctor and the Diva is a story that begins in 1903 in Boston, and uh, it begins with a young Harvard-educated obstetrician who's a rising star in his profession and he has a patient that he is becoming dangerously attracted to her name is Erica she's a lovely opera singer she comes from a family of illustrious doctors and they've all turned to Dr. Ravel to for for help for her in conceiving a child and Dr. Ravel becomes so drawn to her that he takes a great moral risk, and all of the action in the story springs from that. Um, and the story, the, the novel is based on ancestors and hundreds of pages of family letters. The, uh, the married couple in the novel, Erica von Kessler and her husband Peter, were inspired by my son's uh, paternal ancestors his great-great-grandparents. They lived in Boston at the beginning of the 20th century, and they led their lives in very daring and adventurous ways, even by modern standards. They're fascinating characters. And, you know, as I read this, I read the novel before I really looked at the press material. I will tend to sort of read a, a little excerpt of the novel, and something about the books has to catch my attention, and this did right away. The, I love the cover art. The cover is beautifully done. And as I read through the, the the blurb on the cover, I thought, oh, this sounds really interesting. And so I read the novel, and then I started to read the press material and realized that these were based on real people. Erica is an astonishing character. She, not only is she lovely physically, but she has this incredible operatic voice. And you take us into the world of opera, not only here in the United States, but also in Italy. How did you do that research, Adrian? Well, it, it was interesting because this book I really wrote in, in two stages. Uh, and the first draft of it I wrote over 20 years ago, and uh, I was adhering very, very carefully at that time to exactly what was in the letters, and it was really kind of hampering my um, my ability to dramatize the story. And so I was, I was sort of disappointed with the first draft, so I put it away. And then about 20 years later, I got this wonderful idea for how to tell the same story. You can tell the same story a thousand ways mm. and it all depends on um, how you frame it. You can you can pick the right moment to enter the story or you can pick a less uh, dramatic moment to, to enter and it can make the whole difference. So I realized that I really needed to start this story not through Erica's point of view, but through the point of view of the young doctor who was becoming obsessed with her, who was falling in love with her, who was about to jeopardize his career because of his feelings for her. 
And, and once he's... I realized that that was the way to enter this story, um, all of the research that I had done partly 20 years ago, and, and I did another re- year of research um, more recently, uh, the the all the themes started to form in my mind sequentially. So I, I would go to libraries, and I took out musty old books about how to hunt for an apartment in Florence, Italy, because that's where Erica went. That's where she decided to go when she wanted to develop her career as an international singer. And I had to find out about the streets of Florence, and I had to find out about how young women in those days um, really reached for a great career. The reason they would leave the United States and go to Italy is because there were very many more opportunities there than there were in the United States. Um, There were over 80 Italian towns and cities that had opera houses. Uh, A young woman like Erica had to find a voice teacher, a maestro, when she arrived in Italy. Uh, And she would work with him for months and months. And when she was ready to make her debut, they called the debut the prova, which was like a test, she would pay an empresario, and he'd hire an orchestra and rent a theater and allow her to appear in a role of her choice. No one wanted to take um, the chance, the risk financially on a young unknown singer. So that was why you had to compensate uh, the empresario for taking this this risk and doing all this work. And if the prova were a success, then paid engagements might follow. And this was this was what she was advised to do as a uh, uh, by another character in the novel before she takes off for Italy when she's still in Boston. She speaks to one of the great divas of the day, who was a real historical figure by the name of Lillian Nordica. She was really the first internationally famous American um, soprano. Uh, And in the novel, Lillian Nordica gives my character, Erica, this advice about how to go and start her life in Italy and begin her career in earnest. And your ancestor, or your husband's ancestor, actually did this. This is 1903. This is not when, I mean, today we could just sort of pick up and go and do something like that. But she wound up, she left her husband, she left her child, and just picked up and went to Italy. Now, Peter, the husband, is a whole different ball of wax character. He almost, I mean, he's a very successful businessman, but he almost feels to me like he would like to be something else. He would like to be an explorer, a naturalist, because he does all of these, I mean, he goes to the Orinoco River for crying out loud, and he goes, he has these butterfly collections, and he brings back a chimpanzee, and he brings back snakes. I mean, this was during the Victorian time when they were interested in all things natural, and Peter is interested in all things, period. He just seems like such an interesting guy to me. But at the same time, of the two people, Peter is the more interested in having the child. And Erica is the, quote, barren female in the story. Yes. Well, um, the Peter character in the story 
is very much based on um, an ancestor of my my son's, um, and he was indeed a fascinating person. Who he was British, and he imported Egyptian cotton and textile machinery um, to New England from from uh, Europe and from Egypt. And he really was a person of voracious curiosity. He traveled across four continents, and he ventured into really remote places. He went upriver in South America towards a waterfall that only 40 Europeans had ever seen before he headed there. He was always, you know, slashing his way through a rainforest with a machete. (laughs) Um, He left wonderfully rich, detailed letters about his adventures. He on Christmas Day one year he was in Egypt and he hired a guide to take him out by camel into the Egyptian desert and uh visited a a tribe of nomads and there he hired this well he actually he didn't really hire her but he persuaded this little girl in the tribe to take him as his tour guide through the encampment of nomads and she took him by hand from one tent to another and uh, as they went through the tents he he would taste the dried bread and the goat's milk of of the tribe's people and uh, he would just do that because he was curious and he did the same thing in in uh, South America when he would head off by himself uh, into remote areas where there were uh, Indians who were living in, well, they they basically lived in uh, the sort of housing where you just had poles and palm leaves for a roof at the top and hammocks to sleep in, and he would stride in there and, and uh, begin to speak to people in sign language, and he'd try to uh, buy some of their, their weapons, their bows and arrows and that sort of thing because he was just fascinated by them. And so everything was of interest to this man, even though his main profession was uh, to be an importer, and, and he was very good at it and became very wealthy. Dashing, swashbuckling, you know, all of those Indiana Jones kind of words flood into my head when I think about the character of Peter. And Ravel is a very interesting character as well. I mean, the novel is peopled with other characters that surround these three major characters, but they're the turning point. I mean, the, the triangle of these three characters is, is the linchpin for the book. Ravel really winds up living two separate lives, and I felt like he was the victim of his time because he is... He, Fertility at this point in time is something that people are beginning to understand but not completely understanding. And he's Harvard-educated, he's a physician, and he works with all women. Well, many of the women, because he's quite attractive, become infatuated with him. And he does have a sexual relationship with one of his patients, who's an older woman, and he winds up getting caught in a gossip sort of situation where another patient who also wanted to be involved with him that he wanted to have nothing to do with, she begins to talk about him. And the two women, he just sort of gets trapped and falls from grace, as it were, and so has to 
go live another life. And he becomes involved. He has a friend who owns several coconut plantations in Trinidad. And so he goes to manage a coconut plantation. And I thought, what? (laughs) But he has to get away because his life is ruined. That's right. Yeah. Um, And the... uh, the settings in this book are very important. The uh, the settings are all derived from places that these ancestors really spent time, and and uh, the coconut plantation in uh, in Trinidad uh, was a place. As I read through the letters, it just completely captivated my imagination. It was so wild and and so beautiful, and there was so much richness there. Uh, the flora and the fauna, the, the descriptions of the the sea and the life with the serving people on the plantation, the um, basically people from uh, East India were populating Trinidad, uh, and they their Dr. Ravel is um, the manager of the plantation, as as you said, and he has very very close. Um, relationships with the people um, who are living and serving him um, at that plantation. And Peter and Erica, when they come, they are completely swept away by this amazing place that's so different from Boston. And I I don't want to give too much away about what happens there, but we'll just leave it at that. So Boston is a very important setting, and Trinidad as well. And then also Florence, Italy. Those are really the three major places in the novel, although there are other exotic travels that uh, are part of the book as well. The story is all so beautifully crafted and so beautifully woven together. And we see life from the perspective of these three characters. And we get to go on adventures with all three characters. And yet there's this gossamer thread that binds these characters together and their lives just will not separate there's they'll be gone from each other physically for long periods of time but the gossamer thread is always there and it's when they see one another like when Ravel and Peter get back together it's like no time has elapsed at all and there's a theme of friendship, and of course the the love is all through the whole book. And I also felt like that there was a strong masculine kind of love and friendship between Peter and Ravel that was very powerful for those two men, in addition to the feelings that they both had for Erica. I mean, it's just, it's a terrific novel. I just loved it, Adrian. I just oh, thought it was wonderful. <laughs> I'm so glad. Well, and I hope that we can get the excitement of what happens in the book across to our listeners because it's we have someone in in Italy who's exploring themselves and their career, and you watch the struggle of of people in the artistic community, and then we've got the character of Peter, who is this swashbuckling, exciting explorer who goes off and does all of these wonderful, incredible things. And then we've got Ravel, who is the Harvard-trained physician who, on the surface, his reputation appears to be ruined. And yet, when he goes to this plantation in Trinidad, all of those skills that 
he had as a physician are useful. And, and, I mean, it's just such a wonderful story. It's hard to believe that people actually lived this. I mean, I just found that stunning when I realized that. Well, that's one of the reasons that um, these ancestors stayed in my mind so vividly. Oh, yeah. Even over over 20 years between the, the first draft of the novel and the one that really became the, the finished uh, book, uh, I just was mesmerized by the richness of the lives they they'd lived and I believed so much in in the material that I had in front of me with the letters and all the rumors that I'd heard in the family and memories about them that elderly relatives had shared with me I had to keep going back to it again and again as a writer and I think for anybody who wants to write there's a little bit of a lesson here in my story about um Keep everything that you've ever written. Put it in boxes, every scrap, every scene you've ever written, even if the the first draft of something doesn't do justice to the material. You might figure out a way to tell it again, a different way, and it may turn into an entirely different book or a different story, and you might really um, manage to tap into what it is that uh, never never fails to captivate you about these people or a situation that you're interested in writing about. Well, you certainly did that. If our listeners want to know more about you, want to know more about this particular book, want to find out anything, you have a new website. Let's give them the address. I do, yes. Uh, it's at www adrianmcdonald.com and let me spell Adrian McDonald because both names are tricky here in terms of spelling. Adrian is A-D-R-I-E-N-N-E and McDonald is spelled M-C-D-O-N-N-E-L-L. Well, you were delightful. I loved the book. I loved chatting with you today. Thank you so much for being our guest on Inside the Writer's Cafe. Well, thank you so much for being such a beautiful interviewer. And we'd like to thank you, our listeners, for being with us today. And remember, until you join us next time, pick up a good book and read.